The abortion medication mifepristone remains on the market for now. In the past hour, the U.S. Supreme Court extended access to the drug until Friday. That gives the justices more time to consider the case. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, April 19th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, another Kennedy in national politics. Today, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced he's running for president. My mission will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. RFK Jr. is running as a Democrat, but he's in the front face of the anti-vaccine movement that draws support from the right. Also on the Republican side, we look at how the presidential campaign of Ron DeSantis is faring compared to Donald Trump's and the man who spent 365 days making recipes by cookbook writer Nigella Lawson. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Court battles over the abortion pill will drag on for at least a couple more days now that U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito has extended an administrative stay for Mifepristone until Friday midnight. NPR Sarah McCammon has more on the latest legal clash before the justices nearly a year after the overwhelmingly conservative high court struck down the landmark 1973 ruling that legalized abortion nationwide. What this latest action from Justice Alito means is simply that things once again will stay as they are. The status quo stays in place at least for a couple more days. Had the court taken no action at all, a lower court ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals would have taken effect that would have imposed some restrictions on abortion pills. But for the moment, for a couple more days, things will stay as they are while the court apparently considers what it wants to do next. NPR's Sarah McCammon. Tyree Nichols' family is suing the city of Memphis, Tennessee, and police over the black motorist beating death in January. Christopher Blank of member station WKNO says Nichols' relatives are seeking $550 million. Attorney Ben Crump called it a landmark civil rights case. The half-billion-dollar suit claims the city's police department was aware of its so-called Scorpion Unit's heavy-handed tactics. These officers are going to admit that this is how they were trained. Multiple videos capture the incident where five police officers chased and beat Nichols after a traffic stop. Crump said the family hopes to change similar policies in other black communities. We want them to know if you do this, then we're coming to your city next. A previous Crump firm settlement with the city of Minneapolis for the death of George Floyd was for a record $27 million. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Blank in Memphis. Sparring over whether an increase in the debt ceiling should come with federal spending cuts has been playing out in dueling speeches this week. In Maryland today, President Biden accuses Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of failing to hold the wealthiest Americans more accountable. Do you think he told the wealthy and powerful that it's about time they step up and start paying a fair share? Not a word. Do you think he told the billion-dollar companies to stop, stop stashing profits and tax havens out off the coast and shipping jobs overseas. I didn't hear any of that. Did you? But McCarthy says the solution is clear. If Washington wants to spend more, it will have to come together, find savings elsewhere, just like every single household in America. On the House floor today, the Speaker unveiled a sweeping package that he says will increase the nation's debt limit by $1.5 trillion into next year while reigning in federal spending. The Dow is down 79 points. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Slow zones across the MBTA subway system are creating longer commutes for riders. The T's new general manager, Philip Eng, says blue line riders can expect to see some of the speed restrictions on that line lifted as soon as next month, but a full removal may take months more. WBR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. Ang told the T's board of directors today the blue line currently has 21 speed restrictions from Bowdoin to Wonderland. What that results in is 15 minutes of additional time for a total round trip across the entire line. Over the next few weeks, Ang says crews will work nights to replace nearly 2,000 feet of rail between Bowdoin and aquarium stations. By the end of May, we anticipate seven more speed restrictions to be removed. That work may require some service shutdowns at night. Ang says speed restrictions across the entire blue line should be lifted no later than November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo Hernandez. The Air National Guardsman from Dighton accused of leaking top-secret military documents appeared in Boston federal court today. 21-year-old Jack Chishera will be held for at least another two weeks. In his three-minute appearance in court today, he waived his right to a preliminary hearing. Uh, that's when prosecutors lay out some of the evidence against him. No date has been set as yet to determine if he can be released pre-trial. Governor Maura Healy is trying to help Massachusetts towns and cities create more effective climate resilience plans. Healy announced today an update to the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program. That helps towns prepare for the impact of climate change, such as flooding and heat. This round will focus on working specifically with environmental justice communities that already bear the burden of environmental pollution and climate impact. Selected cities and towns will also receive training and $50,000 to develop and implement an action plan. 51 degrees now in the Boston area, getting chilly this afternoon and evening. Should fall all the way to 39 overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, milder weather back up in the mid-60s. Lots of sunshine due in. Then Friday, sunny again. Highs in the mid-60s. The weekend should turn out partly to mostly cloudy, breezy with highs in the 60s. It's now 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Each year, more than 2,000 American adolescents get bariatric surgery as the treatment gains traction among families and doctors alike. We'll hear from one of the first teens to get the surgery on how it affected her life. More on that in a few minutes. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis seemed to have a pretty clear plan for early 2023, rack up win after win in Tallahassee during Florida's legislative session, travel all all over the country looking like a presidential candidate without actually formally announcing a campaign. So far, the Florida governor is getting what he hoped for in the state house, but a series of stumbles and a slew of recent endorsements for Donald Trump, not DeSantis, has political observers questioning whether his campaign has peaked before it formally began. Emily Mahoney has been following DeSantis's non-campaign campaign from Florida. She is the political editor at the Tampa Bay Times. Hey, Emily. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So just get a sense of the balance that DeSantis is trying to strike. Tell us how he's spending his days lately. Yeah, so he is jetting all over the country. Honestly, keeping track of his schedule is a bit like playing Where's Waldo here from Florida. Uh, to give you an example of a particularly busy uh, period uh, late last week, 
on Thursday evening, he was near Cincinnati speaking at a Lincoln Day dinner. Then later that night, he flew back to Tallahassee, late at night, signed a bill banning abortions in Florida after six weeks. By the next morning, he was in Virginia speaking to Liberty University. And later that day, he was scheduled to be in New Hampshire. So he's really all over the place, sort of mixing and matching both official duties as governor and also, of course, doing lots of political stuff as well. Yeah. So let's look back to November. Election day, DeSantis wins Florida in a blowout. Most of Trump's handpicks nominees falter. It seems like maybe DeSantis is the future for Republicans. This week, though, when DeSantis visited Washington, D.C., he had several Florida congressmen really embarrass him by using that moment to announce that they're backing Trump. What's going on here? Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's kind of a combination of of a few different wobbles that he's been experiencing. You know, he also uh, called the the war in Ukraine a territorial dispute, which also kind of brought down a lot of criticism, bipartisan mm-hmm. criticism uh, that also, you know, sort of had him dipping in the polls a little bit. And, um, you know, one thing I found interesting about some of the, the more recent uh, endorsements from Florida's members of Congress was the one from Congressman Greg Stubbe, who said that uh, he felt snubbed essentially at a DeSantis press conference after Hurricane Ian and that Donald Trump was much warmer to him, that Trump reached out to him when Stubbe had a recent accident and was in the hospital and that he never heard from DeSantis. And so, you know, I I think this is a combination of a few different things happening right now. But, uh, you know, the Stubbe example sort of reminds me of the fact that we've been hearing a criticism of DeSantis for a long time now that he's not a very warm person yeah. who's that good at schmoozing or that comfortable with schmoozing, which is sort of the polar opposite of Donald Trump. And I think, you know, Trump is potentially cashing in right now on the personal relationships that he's built over time in the Republican Party. And look, it's hard to run for president, even if like Ron DeSantis at this particular moment, you aren't officially doing it. Of course, he's going everywhere you go when you're running for president. But have you seen any signs that he's kind of responding to the criticism or the circumstances and changing his approach? Well, uh, when it comes to something like the Ukraine comment, he did sort of walk that back and say that, you know, he didn't really mean that the whole war was a territorial dispute and things like that. So we have seen him adjusting somewhat. And even that is somewhat rare for DeSantis because he is more typical. uh, It's more typical for him to sort of double down on things when he gets criticized. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, he's still acting like a guy who fully intends on running for president. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that anything that's gone on lately is is changing his plans. Um, and, you know, you could argue that the poll numbers on a guy who hasn't even fully announced a campaign yet are, you know, pretty limited in their usefulness anyway. And we've got something like nine months before the first primary begins. That's Emily Mahoney. She is the Tampa Bay Times political editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. A decade ago, bariatric surgery on young teenagers was largely unheard of. Today, surgery and new weight loss drugs are endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics as advanced treatment for severe obesity in kids as young as 13. As more families consider surgical treatment, NPR's Yuki Noguchi talked with a woman who was one of the first young teens to get it. Maria Caprino is 27, a first-grade teacher at a Boston charter school, and a single mom by choice, having given birth to her second child this month. All of that's been possible, she says, because she got bariatric surgery 13 years ago. 
I had been told by my pediatrician that the way I was gaining weight every year, I wouldn't see my 18th birthday. I was pre-diabetic. We really thought the obesity was going to kill me. In 2010, Caprino was 14 and still gaining weight at 440 pounds while on various diets. Her mom found a doctor at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., willing to perform a gastric sleeve operation, then still new. Being one of the first and potentially the youngest to ever get the surgery did not scare a young Caprino. I was like, if someone's going to be a guinea pig, I'm ready to do it, because if I can help anyone else who's suffering the way I have been, it's going to be worth it in the end. And if I get more than four more years out of my life out of it, again, it's going to be worth it. Evan Nadler is the surgeon who performed Caprino's surgery. She's one of the first people to really understand obesity care. And obviously, she was one of the first to focus on children and adolescents also needing that care. Caprino's once novel story is now relevant to many more families today. More than 2,000 American adolescents get the surgery every year. That's likely to increase as the new treatment guidelines lead to greater awareness and insurance coverage for obesity treatment, whether it's surgery or new classes of medications like Wagovi. Of course, many parents recoil at the notion of putting children under the knife. Skeptics like UCLA surgeon Edward Livingston worry kids can't understand its lifelong implications. He advises parents, Let them wait until they can make their own decision. Complications are also a concern. Those can include infection or tearing or malnutrition or weight regain in the longer term. Even Caprino needed an additional surgery several years later. Harvard obesity specialist Fatima Cody-Stanford says surgery is typically a family's last choice. For example, one boy she met at 13 faced liver failure from obesity. The mom and him were like adamant against any surgical intervention. For two years, he tried medications and exercise and made no progress. Only now are they open to surgery. Stanford says that resistance is partly due to stigma. They've been taught by society to believe that you do this the right way. The right way is diet and exercise. Parent Nikki Massey can relate. She's on the board of the Obesity Action Coalition, an advocacy group that receives industry funding. She got bariatric surgery 15 years ago when her daughters were young. Now both are in their 20s and struggle with obesity-related health problems. We could have avoided these things if we had caught it earlier. But she also admits she might have rejected it had surgery been an option. Oh, even when I think that, it's like, <laughs> this is where my scientific brain and my parenting brain clash. She knows obesity is driven by factors like genetics or environment that are not in a child or parent's control. And yet... I would have judged myself as a parent for it. I would feel like somehow I didn't do what I was supposed to have done to, to control this any other way. And I know in my head academically that obesity is a medical condition. In other words, there's lots of fear, not just of surgery, but of judgment. So surgeons like Thomas Inge at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago emphasize that obesity is a disease and point to surgery's promising track record. Inge is also lead author of an upcoming 10-year study of bariatric surgery on teens. He says the data will show the benefits are durable. You're going to live longer. You're going to be healthier and live longer with the surgery than without it. He says treatment also often relieves mental health burdens for kids. Maybe if it's not a societal glass ceiling, it's a glass ceiling in their minds that they can't do something that their peers can do because of just their lived experience. If I can do something about that, 
I feel really good about it. And I think that they will enjoy better lives because we've intervened. So it was for Maria Caprino, who never joined theater groups in school, despite her love of the musical stage. Costumes didn't fit me, and I was afraid to get up on stage. And with my body, I couldn't get enough air into my lungs, really hit the notes that I wanted to musically. I felt it impacting my passions, my ability to feel passion for the things I loved. Rigorous mental health evaluations prior to surgery is the recommended standard. Teens must prove they can commit to the permanent changes in lifestyle and nutrition necessary after surgery. They must also be emotionally stable enough to handle such big life changes. For Caprino, the impact was immediate and welcome. In so many ways, I changed as a person very quickly. She didn't just lose weight. She spoke out. She appeared on CNN just a month after surgery. I want to live. I want to do so many things. And I knew that this was my only option. That segment drew vicious criticism, especially of her parents. But Caprino says facing that reinforced her convictions about surgery. It was me facing a lot of anxieties I had about acknowledging what I looked like and acknowledging my health and being okay saying, yeah, I have a disease, I have obesity, and I'm doing something to treat it. Caprino shed tears of joy, she says, when the Pediatrics Association endorsed bariatric surgery for teens. Because if these guidelines had been in place when I was 12, I would have had to fight so much less to live. It does so much more than just impact their physical health. It impacted my passions in life, my social life, my ability to speak out and just own who I am. She's glad many more kids now might have surgery as an option. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for the Democratic nomination for president. We'll hear how his policies have garnered him lots of support from conservatives. Also ahead, science news. New data show that an old model of the brain's motor cortex is incomplete. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Stocks closed not too far from where they opened today. The Dow had the most movement. It fell about a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost a tiny fraction of a percent. The number of millionaires in Boston has risen by 50 percent in the past decade. There are now more than 40,000 millionaires, according to the new annual report by the investment firm Henley & Partners. That means the city of Boston has the seventh highest numbers of millionaires in the U.S., the 26th highest worldwide. The city has eight billionaires. New York has the most millionaires in the world. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. 
If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. In the forecast, it's partly cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures about 39 tomorrow. On the windy side, more sunshine. Temperatures could rise to the mid-60s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from EasyCater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Climate change is causing glaciers to melt around the world. This is a story about what happens to communities after a glacier melts. You must walk as a penguin. Like this? Yes. Why? That's NPR's Rebecca Hersher getting help from a trekking guide named Depeche Joshi. If you walk fast, you get more tired. Mm. Slow and steady. Yes. Okay, I can do that. Walk like a penguin. They were high in the Himalayan mountains, near 16,000 feet, with a team from NPR's climate desk. And they were climbing up something called a moraine, which is basically a thousand-foot-tall pile of boulders created by a glacier. But when they finally got to the top, there was no glacier in sight. Oh, wow. There was only water. NPR's Rebecca Hersher takes it from here. The water stretched basically as far as I could see, a gigantic gray lake surrounded by rocky mountains. And even though this place had clearly been shaped by glaciers for millennia, I couldn't see any ice at first. Can you see the glacier from here? Yeah. Depeche, the trekking guide, pointed all the way to the other end of the lake. Do you see the sand? Yeah. Over there? That's the glacier. The uh, ice is covered in sand? Yes. Oh. It looked like a dirty snowbank at the end of the winter. All of the water that used to be frozen in that glacier is sitting in front of us. The water can't flow downhill because it's trapped by the huge pile of boulders that we just climbed, the moraine. The moraine is like a natural dam. And so as the glacier dies, the lake grows and grows and threatens everyone living downstream. After I caught my breath by the water's edge, I began chatting with a retired school teacher named Talak Acharya, who had hiked up to the lake just for fun that day. He has lived in this area for decades. Yeah, how has this changed? Since, many since. The lake has gotten a lot bigger, he says. It was big, big, big. He's seen it grow with his own eyes. In the 1950s, when he was a child, it was just a collection of small ponds and a pasture. Now, the water covers an area the size of about 300 football fields. Binu Shrestha is one of the leading scientists studying lakes like this one. She works at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, a research institute in Kathmandu. And she says glacial lakes are a growing threat. We can say that, yes, uh, climate change are really impacting glacier as well as glacier lake. 
The problem is that climate change is causing mountain glaciers to melt extremely quickly, and the lakes that are formed are often unstable. The water can escape all at once. That's what happened last year to multiple glacial lakes in Pakistan, as the country grappled with some of the worst floods in modern history. A year earlier, a flood from a glacial lake in India killed an estimated 200 people and destroyed a hydropower plant. Glacial lakes have also caused floods in the Alps, in the Andes, and in the U.S. A glacial lake outside Alaska's capital, Juneau, has caused flash flooding every year since 2011. Juneau is one of the few places in the world where residents downstream get a warning before such a flood happens. There is no warning system for the vast majority of the estimated 15 million people threatened by glacial lake floods worldwide, including in Nepal. 74-year-old Ang Tenzin Sherpa lives in the village of Na, immediately downstream from the lake that we visited. From his farm, he can see the moraine that holds back the water. Nepal's government warns that the lake poses a critical risk. If the natural dam is overwhelmed and the lake bursts, Ang's entire village will be gone. In the summer, if it rains, I can't sleep. Every sound I hear, I wonder if it's the water coming down from the lake. I wear my clothes to bed every night in case we need to run away. My colleague, Nepalese journalist Pragati Shahi, asks Sherpa if he would feel more safe if there was a warning system, like an alarm. Yeah, it will be helpful if we get like some early warnings before some events happen. In the 1990s and early 2000s, there was an alarm system here. And the story of what happened to it is emblematic of how hard it can be to protect people from lakes like this one. Talak Acharya, the retired school teacher I met standing next to the lake, told me the story of what happened. About 30 years ago, he says, there was a minor flood here. The water came from a smaller lake created by the melting of a smaller glacier. The flood damaged some buildings, and it definitely made us pay attention to the lake. After that, we wrote letters to the government, to embassies, to everyone. In their letters, Acharya and his neighbors demanded that the government do something to protect them. The government responded by installing alarms that would be triggered if a flood was happening, and also by draining some of the water from the lake to reduce the danger. Did it work? Oh. It helped. If we hadn't done it, the risks from floods would be much worse. But over time, Acharya says, the alarms broke. A lead government hydrologist told NPR it's too difficult to maintain the equipment. This area is remote. It's many days' walk to the nearest road. Electricity just arrived for the first time last year. And so now there are no alarms and no plans to fix them. The threat of flooding has changed this valley. Villages that once thrived on the banks of the river are shrinking. Schools have closed. There are fewer businesses. Homes stand empty. The looming lake has even inserted itself into otherwise happy families. Ang Tenzin Sherpa has been married to his wife, Ferdigi, for 40 years. He is the one who sleeps in his clothes so he can flee if there's a flood. The couple have a farm where they raise yaks and potatoes. On the day I visited, 80-year-old Ferdiki was churning butter in their living room. Ferdiki and Ang have seven children and nine grandchildren. 
most of whom live hours away in Kathmandu. Ang would like to join them. If I had money, I would live in Kathmandu. I think it would be better there. But Ferdiki has no interest in moving to the city. I don't like living in Kathmandu. It's like, I like it here. Here, the water is clean, she says. She can breathe. She's not afraid. This is her home. So it's, uh, it's good to live here. Of course, this is her husband's home, too, the only one he's ever known. But it's changing so quickly that it frightens him. I noticed he seems more scared than his wife. Do they ever talk about it? Ang avoids the question and laughs, which is its own kind of answer. For now, they'll stay here, in the shadow of the lake. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News, Cho Rolpa Lake, Nepal. This piece was reported in collaboration with Ryan Kelman and Pragati Shahi, with field support from Depesh Joshi and Prasong Sherpa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins host the Florida Panthers tonight in Game 2 of their first-round playoff series. Boston will be without Captain Patrice Bergeron because of an upper body injury. The Bees lead the series one game to zero. Red Sox take on the Minnesota Twins tonight for the second game of their three-game series at Fenway Park, 7-10 start time. Corey Kluber pitches for the Sox, Joe Ryan for the Twins. In the forecast, should get down to about 39 degrees overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, milder weather back up in the mid-60s with sunshine due in for the day. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. And BU School of Theater and College of Communication, taking audiences behind the scenes of an original TV comedy pilot, April 27th to May 6th. More at bu.edu CFA. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, it's Tech Talk with Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray. Tech sector layoffs are putting workers with H-1B visas in a frantic immigration crunch. Plus, robotics company Boston Dynamics is back in the news. The NYPD just announced the purchase of its controversial robot, Digidog. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Boston, the detention hearing for an Air National Guardsman charged with leaking highly classified military documents has been delayed for two weeks. The judge in the case canceled today's hearing to allow the defense more time to prepare. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira made a brief appearance in handcuffs today as he waived his right to a preliminary hearing. He was charged last week with espionage for sharing and transmitting national defense information. Speaking during a news conference in Sweden today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the vast majority of service members are young and age has nothing to do with access to sensitive information. The issue is, uh, you know, how uh, you uh, responsibly uh, execute or carry out your duties and how you protect the information. Uh, you know, all of us have a, have a requirement to do that and supervisors have a requirement to make sure that that's being done. Teixeira has yet to enter a plea. 
Meanwhile, in Alabama, police in Dadeville have arrested two teenagers they say are responsible for the mass shooting at a Sweet 16 birthday party over the weekend. Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio tells us police are still in the early stages of the investigation. Shortly after he announced the arrest of the two teenage suspects, Sergeant Jeremy Burkett made another appeal for individuals to come forward with further information related to the shooting. Burkett also gave indication the investigation would continue to move at the same pace. We're going to be very careful with everything that we say, with everything that we do, because we absolutely are going to stay focused on the families and the victims. Members of the community have expressed frustration that law enforcement officials have not provided the public with more details concerning the shooting, including a possible motive. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Troy, Alabama. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The pastor of a Cambridge church severely damaged by fire on Easter Sunday says he's shocked that investigators believe the fire was set. That fire broke out at the Faith Lutheran Church near Inman Square, Cambridge. WBR's Dave Faniff has more. Pastor Robin Lute Johan says it will take some time to process the surprise, shock, and grief. He says the news about arson is concerning and disturbing for the community. When you hear news like this, sometimes our first response might be to speculate or to come up with theories or to go to fear or blame. And those are all not really very productive places to be right now. Lute Johan says the church members' faith and commitment to pray for one another will lead them to love, confidence, and hope. As for the future of the church, he says it is way too soon to tell what the plans eventually will be. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. The health insurance firms Tufts Health Plan and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare have become victims of a cyber attack. The parent company of the two says a ransomware attack is to blame. It was discovered Monday. Harvard's Pilgrim website is down as a result. The breach affected systems for its members, brokers, and providers. The company says it's working to learn if any customers had sensitive information compromised and will notify anyone who was affected. Eversor says it expects to cut its electricity prices in Massachusetts this summer. The utility said today its electric customers can expect to see a decrease in bills when the next adjustment happens on July 1st. The company will file its specific rate request with the state by mid-May. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival, sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists, and more, this Saturday in Waltham, goreplace.org. Plenty of clouds around this afternoon. Sunshine makes a cameo in some areas every now and then. Temperatures should head down to about 39 overnight tonight on the windy side. Tomorrow, windy again. Sunny and dry. High temperatures could rise to the mid-60s. For Friday, not too much change. Bright sunshine up in the mid-60s again. Then the weekend should feature clouds with highs in the low to mid-60s. This is WBUR, 51 degrees now at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com 
slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Scientists thought they knew how our brains control our muscles. Turns out they were wrong. We'll hear about that discovery that led to the reassessment in a few minutes. But first, a familiar name has entered the 2024 presidential race to challenge President Biden for the Democratic nomination, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He made his formal announcement earlier today in Boston. My mission over the next 18 months of this campaign and over my, throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening now. Now, Kennedy isn't just a member of one of America's most famous political dynasties. He's also an anti-vaccine activist who's been criticized by his own family. NPR's Shannon Bond joins us now to explain more. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Elsa. So, okay, a lot of people, of course, know the Kennedy name, but can you remind us who exactly is Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Sure. He's the nephew of President John F. Kennedy and son of Bobby Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy Jr. is a lawyer who is originally probably best known as an environmental activist. But as you said, he's not only become a central figure in the anti-vaccination movement, but he's also promoted other conspiracy theories, like the baseless idea that 5G telecom networks are being used to control people's behavior. Wow. Okay. How did Kennedy wind up as a leader in the anti-vax movement, though? Well, he said he is not opposed to vaccines. He frames his criticisms as being about safety. You know, and in his speech today, he didn't address vaccines directly, but he did raise concerns about chronic illnesses, autism, quote, poisoning our children. And these are all references to these debunked and false and misleading claims that he has promoted for years that undermine trust in vaccines. During Most recently during the COVID pandemic, he opposed vaccine mandates and other public health measures. He promoted unproven treatments such as ivermectin. You know, and that did result in some of his social media accounts being taken down for spreading false health claims. He says that's censorship. But the pandemic also did a lot to raise his profile. And so we're in this sort of strange place now where Kennedy is this figure this with this iconic Democratic name, mm-hmm. but he's also now being embraced by many on the political right who have adopt anti-vax views. Right. But he is running as a Democrat. Let me ask you this. President Biden's approval rating with Democrats, I mean, it's pretty strong right now. Polls find that Democrats are also more willing to get vaccinated than are Republicans. So what is the rationale for Kennedy here? Because <laughs> this sounds kind of like a long shot, right? Yeah. And, you know, for a long time, also, vaccine opponents weren't particularly aligned with one political party. Here's how Annette Meeks, who's a lifelong Republican who runs the Freedom Foundation of Minnesota, a conservative think tank. Here's how she put it. In the early days, it really is kind of where the crunchy granola left meets the far right. But that started to change even before COVID. You saw vaccine opponents begin to rally under the banner of what they called liberty or freedom. That seems to have really resonated with conservatives. And then when COVID came along, resistance to vaccines became linked with resistance to other things like closing schools, wearing masks. Everything was filtered through this partisan divide. And in fact, Kennedy does have some surprising sources of support. Donald Trump's former advisor, election denier Steve Bannon, has publicly suggested Kennedy should enter the Republican primary Mm. and the conspiracy theorist and Trump ally Roger Stone has his own suggestion that Trump should pick Kennedy as his running mate. That is NPR's Shannon Bond. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Elsa. 
The simple act of reaching for a cup of coffee takes a lot of brain power. The brain has to control dozens of muscles, process information from the eyes and the fingertips, and make sure you get that jolt of caffeine. And as NPR's John Hamilton reports, scientists now think they know how all of this happens so smoothly. Researchers at Washington University in St. Louis have spent years using MRI scans to create detailed maps of the wiring in people's brains. Dr. Nico Dosenbach says one day they noticed something odd in the primary motor cortex, an area that controls muscles. It just didn't make sense if the textbook was right. Textbooks show an unbroken ribbon of cortex with segments devoted to specific muscle groups like the tongue or a toe. But the scientists were seeing areas between these segments that were not in textbooks. And these areas were not controlling muscles. Dosenbach's colleague, Evan Gordon, says at first they thought it might be a mistake. Is this just something weird about the data we have collected, or is this present in other people? So we went and gathered together data from a bunch of different sources. Dosenbach says the data confirmed their own observations. This heretical thought that maybe this is right and the book is wrong started to take hold. But if these mysterious bits of brain weren't controlling muscles, what were they doing? Gordon says to find out, the team did some experiments on their favorite subject, Nico Dosenbach. We put Nico in the scanner a long time and had him do a whole bunch of different stuff until we figured it out. Complicated stuff, like rotating his left hand in one direction while rotating his right foot the other way. This meant Dosenbach's brain had to plan his movements before carrying them out. And Gordon says that revealed something surprising. We found that these regions in motor cortex were more active during this planning phase, and that's what really pointed us in the right direction. Ultimately, Dosenbach says, this led to a new map of the motor cortex. There's two interleaved systems. So it's a checkerboard pattern. It's specific body parts, so it would be like your fingers and your hand. And then below it will be a region that is essentially whole body integrative action. In other words, these areas integrate information from all over the body and brain in order to carry out a movement. Dosenbach says the finding, which appears in the journal Nature, contradicts a central belief about motor cortex. The region that controls your finger is not going to be connected to a region that has something to do with, like, what am I going to do today? And that's exactly the kind of connectivity we found. To be sure, they reviewed several huge databases of MRI brain scans. And once again, Gordon says, they found evidence of two interleaved systems, one for specific muscles and one for the whole body and brain. It always was there. We had not perceived it, and it was because of the things we learned in the first neuroscience class that we ever took. Early on, the team shared their finding with Peter Strick, the scientific director of the University of Pittsburgh Brain Institute. Sometimes you have this aha experience, and they showed me some of their data, and it instantly clicked. Strick says other groups have noted flaws in the textbook version of the motor cortex, but the Washington University team is offering a totally new explanation. I see this as a really fundamental change in how we're going to view the motor cortex. Strick says the finding helps explain how the brain solves a difficult problem created by actions like getting out of a chair. Even simple movements require nuanced control of all organ systems. You control heart rate. You have to control blood pressure. You have to control the so-called fight-and-flight responses. And Strick says the interleaved system probably helps explain the mysterious connection between what's going on in our bodies and what's going on in brain areas involved in thoughts and emotions. How you move can have an impact on how you feel. 
and how you feel, it's going to have an impact on how you move. There's potential for interplay. You know, my mother would tell me, stand up straight, you'll feel better. Well, maybe that's true. All because of a system not found in any medical textbook, yet. John Hamilton, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Ohio River supplies drinking water to millions of people between Pennsylvania and Illinois. It's also one of the most endangered rivers in the country, according to a new report from the conservation nonprofit American Rivers. NPR's Shema Byram joins us now to discuss why. Hey, Shema. Hey, Elsa. So I understand that you recently visited the Ohio River where it starts in Pittsburgh. What did you see there? So I had this beautiful view from this overlook in Pittsburgh where you can actually see the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers come together to form the Ohio River. There were barges going up and down the river, uh, Mm -hmm. a reminder that this nearly thousand mile long river is still a main way to transport goods. You know, it's important to remember the Ohio River gave life to Pittsburgh's coal, petroleum and steel industries, which sustained the local economy, but also polluted the waterways. I met this woman, Judy Baumgartner. She's a Pittsburgh native. She remembers seeing big pipes from the plants going into the river and the smell. It had a sweet, different smell. It wasn't fresh water. You know, you just got used to it. And many people I talked to in Pittsburgh, including Baumgartner, assumed that the river was in good shape. To me, the river looks a lot more healthy now than it did back then. The Ohio River is much healthier than it was back then. But it still faces some challenges. Okay, well, let's talk about those challenges. Like, what are some of the biggest threats to the Ohio River now? So, Elsa, it comes down to a few things. One, you have legacy pollution left over from these old industries. The toxins they dump, like mercury, still impact fish and other wildlife. Mm -hmm. And then, two, um, you have these new industries that have moved into the Ohio River Basin. These companies, they have permits to release a certain amount of chemicals into the water. But environmental groups say there is not enough enforcement when companies exceed those permitted amounts. Mm. And three, climate change, of course, is another factor because it leads to more frequent and heavy rainfall. That overwhelms the stormwater and sewer system in Pittsburgh. And so when it rains a lot, sewage overflows and seeps into the Ohio River, creating these toxic algae blooms. Well, of course, as well, the Ohio River was in the news in February when a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine, which I understand is only, what, 16 miles from the Ohio River? How did that derailment impact the river specifically? So you may have heard of this toxic chemical, butyl acrylate. Mm -hmm. It was released into nearby streams after the East Palestine derailment. What's important to remember is that those tributaries flow directly into the Ohio River, so that chemical did end up in the river. And companies transport hazardous materials on this waterway all the time, either in barges or on nearby freight trains. So if an accident happens, that can have huge consequences on the river. Yeah. Well, what's being done now to help clean up and protect the river? So there's a group of stakeholders drafting a plan right now to submit to Congress this year that could help transform the Ohio River Basin into a federally protected water system. Meanwhile, environmental groups like Three Rivers Waterkeeper want polluting industries to be held accountable. I went out on the Ohio River with the organization's Evan Clark. 
He explained they do regular patrols for microplastics and test water quality. It's a source of food and this uh, source of abundant and relatively rare on the global scale fresh water. It just deserves a lot of protection and love. Fresh water is where we get our drinking water from, and it's the water we use to grow crops. But only 2.5% of the Earth's water is fresh water. And as climate change and pollution threaten water supplies, experts say it's critical that we find ways to protect it. That is NPR's Shema Byram. Thank you so much, Shema. Thank you, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in the next half hour, many American companies left Russia shortly after it invaded Ukraine. Others that waited are now finding it challenging to leave. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera. Don't miss Omar, named Best Classical Performance by the New York Times. Opens May 4th. Visit blo.org. In the forecast, should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, chillier than our overnights have been, temperatures dipping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow and Friday should be in the mid-60s, with sunny skies likely both days. Should be breezy as well. Some clouds around for the weekend, temperatures settling in the 60s. Listen to a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with the Marshall Project. Violation is a story about two families and a crime that's bound them together for decades. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcast. Yes. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.49. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Grogan & Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. Elsa, does cooking stress you out? Totally. That's why I never cook. But how can you be stressed listening to this voice and this advice? Just concentrate on providing a welcoming atmosphere. You're not striving for perfection. You're not a restaurant. You're not having an ambassadorial reception. These are your friends. And that is Nigella Lawson, who has comforted so many wannabe cooks over the years through several TV shows and cookbooks. And it was one of those television shows that inspired Nathan Young to dive into the kitchen and to get to work. Young is a marketing professional from England. He and his husband were watching Lawson one night when Young cooked up a pretty big challenge for himself. He decided to commit to spending 365 days cooking Lawson's recipes. Nathan Young and Nigella Lawson are here to talk about what happened next. Good afternoon to both of you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? 
Oh, I'm great, and this is this is such a fun challenge. And Nathan, I want I, I want to start with that. Uh, you know, I, I'm told that you decided to take this on after watching an episode of Nigella's show. What was the dish that that set this going in your brain? It was the jameli with anchovies, tomato, um, and mascarpone. We were watching it. Um, it was you know raining outside, cozy day on the sofa, and my husband had said to me, you know. Oh, I bet that's, that's, that's really good. I really want that. You know, you can smell it almost. And I, it has anchovies in it. And anchovies are completely new to, to both of us. And I remember saying to him, you know, how can you smell it if you've never had anchovies? And we kind of, I went from there basically and decided to make it. And that, that's a leap though from, I'm going to try making that dish to I'm going to do this every single day for a year. How quickly did it broaden out? It was tasting that dish with the anchovies in it. Um, that was the kind of revelation really, you know how you can go so long through life, you know, avoiding anchovies, basically, and then you taste them in, in this dish and, you know, they brought a whole new level of flavor to everything that I'd never tasted before. So it was a bit of a, a revelation as to what food can bring. Nigella, I want to bring you in here. How did you first hear about this effort? I think what I first noticed was these beautiful photos of my food. And here was someone who made my food look so much better than I make it look myself. And... I think what I really loved was seeing what Nathan's likes were, how he chose to go from one recipe to another. And I felt so excited and I thought, look, don't be bossy. Don't say, why don't you do this? And why don't you do that one? And sometimes I managed not to be too bossy and sometimes I didn't stop myself, uh, but it was. And then sometimes Nathan would cook a recipe that I might not have cooked for five years. And I thought, and I had to go and and cook it again myself. So in a way, it was this wonderful ricochet inspiration. Nathan, you know, I think I think this probably reminds a lot of people of, of the wonderful Nora Ephron movie, Julie and Julia. Uh, and, and in real life, Julie Powell, the, the writer who who took on the task of, of, of recreating Julia Child's cookbook for a year. When that really happened, Julia Child did not like that project, uh, Julie Powell later wrote. So I'm wondering, first of all, it must have been intimidating to find out that Nigella was following along, but I imagine you were relieved when, when, when she approved of this, when she got on board. Oh, no, absolutely. You know, that was definitely a big relief and uh, definitely a concern when watching the movie. But, you know, the movie and the, the writings of Julie Powell was also uh, an inspiration for me to kind of start this. And I was massively relieved when, uh, when Nigella supported. But I also expected nothing different because I know she's very lovely to her followers and to her fans and everyone that cooks along to her food. I really love it. But also Julia Child wanted to teach the one correct way to cook certain things, which isn't really what I'm doing. My food is... It doesn't belong in the classical repertoire and it's not the sort of food that people would eat in restaurants necessarily. If the person cooking the recipe feels like an observer, not a participant, and not uh, doesn't have a sense of sharing and the ownership of the recipe, then in a way you lose that sense of community and it's more like an exam. But I think that there's enough scope in a way to choose recipes that fit in with your life. And Nathan, I think that gets to something that really made this project connect with so many people. Throughout this process, you realized that that cooking really helped with your anxiety. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, it did. I knew that, you know, it would it would give me that kind of half an hour to an hour at the end of every day to just kind of shut down and basically 
I used to cook quite kind of chaotically before, as we all do when we need to kind of throw something together. But you'd get stuck in ruts, really, um, which I don't think helps anxiety, to be honest with you. And what can really help with anxiety is if you try and take as short a time or as long a time as you, as you can every day to just kind of be a bit more mindful and focus on, on what you're doing at the time, you know, stop your thoughts from racing. So by kind of choosing a, um, a food writer and sticking with the same food writer, you'd learn to trust them over time and you just kind of basically hand guidance over to them um, and you just, you know, follow their steps for the... 20, 30 minutes it takes to cook it. Um, and then, you know, you sit down and enjoy the meal, enjoy the deliciousness and the, the fruits yeah. of your of your labours. But don't you think, Nathan, as well, that in terms of it helping anxiety, because I know that people often think, like, are you mad? How can cooking help your anxiety? But in a way, what helps is that you gave yourself a plan and a structure, but not a structure that left you with no room to manoeuvre. And I think what's very difficult is when you just say, right, I'm going to cook more, or I'm going to do this, but you don't make it easy for yourself by planning a bit or giving yourself the steps so that it always feels like this amorphous, I must do, rather than, right, I'm going to do this. And I think that cooking is stressful when people feel they have to do restaurant food or if they feel it's a bit of performance. And I think that's why when you cook just for yourself or just for the people you live with, on the whole, you're not thinking about that part. You ju you're just thinking about you want something lovely for dinner that doesn't, isn't going to use every pot and pan in the house. I do want to ask about about your get-together at the end of this project. Now, Jella, you, you decided, as Nathan approached day 365, that you wanted to host him and make lunch for him. Well, yes, I wanted to cook for him. So he'd done my food such a lot, and I wanted to cook for him. Now, of course, by this ridiculous reversals, I then got quite nervous. Like, what am I going to cook? And I wanted to cook you something that I really thought he'd like. And I went for some pork knuckles, which uh, it's a recipe for pork knuckles with beer apples and potatoes, quite a Germanic dish, but I used hard cider rather than beer. And I could tell by his cooking that he was someone who would like crackling and the lusciousness of, you know, fatty meat. I regret asking this because I purposely ate lunch before this interview, but when you described the pork knuckles, my stomach started rumbling. <laughs> but I'm wondering... Nathan, what did the pork knuckles taste like? Oh, brilliant, you know, wonderful, you know, delicious, tender meat. And, you know, Nigella's right, I do like kind of fattier meats because, you know, they're soft and, and moist. Um, and the crackling was, you know, out of this world. And yeah, the, the, the apples that kind of collect all the, the fatty juices underneath that are cooked within, within the cider and the caraway was in there as well. I might even give it a go myself or a version of it. That's Nathan Young, a marketing manager from Manchester, England, along with cookbook writer Nigella Lawson. Nathan spent 365 days cooking Nigella's recipes. Thanks to both of you for talking with me. It was a lot of fun. It was so lovely. And you know, Nathan is no doubt going to be a cookbook author of the future. Very generous of you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, 
designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. A heads up if you're using the MBTA tonight. Shuttle buses will replace service on the red line between Park Street and JFK UMass Station from 8.45 until the end of service. As for track work to be done, same thing will happen again tomorrow night. And the forecast should get down to about 39 degrees overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies. Then milder tomorrow and sunnier should be in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 4.59. WBUR supporters include the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu slash analytics. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court puts off a decision on whether to limit access to the abortion pill mifepristone. So, the drug remains widely available for now. The delay gives justices more time to consider the case. Today is Wednesday, April 19th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, for the first time this Ramadan, the Muslim call to prayer is being broadcast from mosques onto the streets of Astoria, Queens. The MBTA's new general manager floats a plan to speed up repairs on the subway system so he can allow the trains to speed up again sooner. If we were to do the traditional way of just on the overnight six months, we'd then push out the other work that we need to do on the other lines. Why the plan could make it harder for people in Boston to get around at night for several weeks. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has outlined broad details of a plan to raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the proposal comes amid a months-long standoff between Democrats and Republicans over the terms for lifting the borrowing limit. Speaker McCarthy once again took aim at President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, accusing them of playing politics with the debt crisis. Now that we've introduced a clear plan for a responsible debt limit increase, they have no more excuse and refuse to negotiate. Democrats have repeatedly said that raising that limit, which is necessary to cover existing debt, should be separate from talks about government spending. Republicans are pitching a plan that would lift the borrowing limit for one year in exchange for deep cuts to a number of federal assistance programs. If the two sides fail to reach an agreement, the nation could default on its debt for the first time ever. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Supreme Court has temporarily extended access to a commonly used abortion pill until Friday. Justices are still considering whether to allow restrictions on mifepristone to take effect, while a legal challenge to the medication's FDA approval continues. 
In an order signed by Justice Samuel Alito, the court indicated it will act by Friday night. The decision follows a ruling by a judge in Texas seeking to invalidate FDA approval of the drug despite its 20-plus year record of safe use. Since the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion last summer, political and legal battles were focused on medications used for abortions. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified government documents appeared briefly in federal court in Boston today. A hearing on whether he will remain in jail pending trial has been rescheduled. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. Jack Teixeira entered the courtroom wearing an orange prison uniform and handcuffs. And he took a seat between his attorneys after the cuffs were removed from his wrists. The hearing was largely a formality and lasted less than five minutes. His detention hearing, which would determine whether Teixeira remains in jail pending trial, was supposed to happen as well. But the court granted a request from Teixeira's attorneys to postpone that hearing to allow them more time to prepare. No date has been set yet for a new one. Teixeira worked as an IT specialist at an Air National Guard base on Cape Cod. He was arrested last week and has been charged with leaking classified U.S. government documents, many of which were about the war in Ukraine. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, outside the federal courthouse in Boston. In Kansas City, an 84-year-old white man who shot and wounded a black teen who knocked on the man's door by mistake has pleaded not guilty. Andrew Lester making his first court appearance today. Lester faces charges of first-degree assault and armed criminal action. He remains free on bond. He shot Ralph Jarl, a 16-year-old, twice. Jarl knocked on Lester's door looking for his younger brothers who were at another home. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 79 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's new general manager, Philip Eng, wants to find ways to lift speed restrictions that are now in place throughout the subway system. Normally, crews work on track repairs for about two hours overnight while trains aren't in service. During a board meeting today, Eng proposed shutting down the blue line for at 7 o'clock nightly for one month. That would give crews seven hours overnight to address the track issues that prompted the speed restrictions. If we were to do the traditional way of just on the overnight six months, we'd then push out the other work that we need to do on the other lines. Ang says it could take until November to remove all the blue line slowdowns. He says proposals for tackling speed restrictions on the red and orange lines are coming soon. Members of a club created to encourage runners of color say they felt targeted by Newton police along the Boston Marathon route Monday. Video shared on social media shows officers use their bicycles to block the group as it cheered on runners. Mike Remy is leader of the club. He says they weren't acting any differently than white spectators. If the problem was you know, confetti and cheering and a DJ, then I think there's another problem that you're too embarrassed to say. It's, you know, wow, there are lots of black and brown people here. What are you all doing out here? Newton police are defending their actions. They say members ignored earlier requests not to go past a rope barrier. Police in Maine say a man has confessed to killing four people, including his parents, and then randomly shooting and injuring three others on a busy highway. The attacks happened in Bowdoin and Yarmouth yesterday. Investigators announced today 34-year-old Joseph Eaton confessed to the crimes and that he was just released from prison Friday. He'd served time for aggravated assault. Officials say his criminal history should have prevented him from legally owning a gun. The nation's first state-regulated overdose prevention center is coming to New England. The Providence, Rhode Island site is set to open early next year. The center will include a trained staff to supervise people using drugs they obtained elsewhere. 
They'll also be able to test drugs for fentanyl and other substances on site. Rhode Island became the first state in the country to legalize those types of sites in 2021. That same year, accidental drug overdoses killed 435 people in Rhode Island. That was a record high. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight should be chillier than it has been overnight. Temperatures dipping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow and Friday should be in the mid-60s. Sunny skies likely both days should be breezy both days as well. 51 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Those iconic red envelopes that changed the way Americans watch movies will soon disappear from mailboxes. After 25 years, Netflix is ending its DVD-by-mail service. More details on that in a bit, including what the very first DVD they shipped was. Elsa, if you want to guess, I can give you a clue, a breakout role from one on a rider. I totally know this one, but I'm not going to give it away. And it was a lifetime ago. But before we get there, Scott, we're going to turn now to news from the Supreme Court, which today postponed a ruling on methapristone. That's the drug used in medication abortions. Meanwhile, one of the manufacturers of the generic form of the drug filed suit against the Food and Drug Administration in an effort to preserve access to the drug, while federal litigation threatens to overturn its FDA approval. Joining us now is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Hi, Nina. Hi there, Elsa. Okay, that was a lot, what I just said. What is going on here? <laughs> I think you could fairly say that everyday things get messier and messier. Yeah, so remind us how we even got here. Well, the latest clash over abortion began nearly two weeks ago in Texas when federal district judge Matthew Kaczmarek imposed a nationwide ban on mifeprestone by declaring that the FDA had improperly approved the drug 23 years ago. Within minutes of that decision, federal judge William Rice in Washington issued a contrary ruling ordering the FDA rules to remain in place for a part of the country. Five days later, the case became even more complicated when the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Texas, Mm -hmm. partially narrowed the ruling from Judge Kaczmarek. The appeals court said that because the statute of limitations for challenging FDA approval of the drug had long ago passed, the drug could still be used under the original terms of its approval. That is, it could be used for up to seven weeks, not the 10 weeks that it has subsequently been approved for by the FDA. In addition, the appeals court rolled back other rules that the FDA has approved since 2015 governing governing how the drug can be used. Okay, and what are those newer rules? Over the last seven years, the FDA has either conducted or reviewed dozens of studies and clinical trials. And based on those, the agency now allows telemedicine appointments. It allows obtaining the drug by mail. And the standard dose of mifepristone is now one-third the strength of the original dose approved 23 years ago. Okay. And then after the Fifth Circuit ruled the Biden administration representing the FDA appealed to the Supreme Court. So where are we now on all of that? Well, last Friday, Justice Alito, who's the justice in charge of emergency appeals from the Fifth Circuit, ordered both sides to submit briefs as to whether to grant an emergency stay. And he ordered what's called an administrative stay, a temporary pause until midnight tonight 
which the court has now extended to Friday midnight. Okay, so the suspense continues. What are the options before the court right now? Well, look, at this point, I think it's a little bit like covering the Kremlin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Option number one, block the lower court orders, but allow the Fifth Circuit to go ahead and hear the expedited arguments, which it's already scheduled for May 17th. I doubt the Fifth Circuit's going to dramatically change its mind, but at least there would be full briefing and arguments, and in all likelihood, the case would end up back at the Supreme Court by next fall. Mm -hmm. Option two would be for the court to block the lower court orders and then hear the case itself, either on an expedited basis in June or at early next term. Option three would be to deny the emergency stay requested by the FDA and Danko Labs, the largest maker of generic mifepristone. Were that to happen, they warn, it would create regulatory chaos jeopardizing access to mifepristone even in states where abortion is legal. So any guess on what option the court will take? Well, look, if, if there was a clear consensus on this at the court, I, I think it, the justices would have acted today. All I can tell you is that during the early days of the pandemic, when some abortion rights activists were trying to ease restrictions on access to abortion pills, the court's conservatives deferred to the FDA's expertise. In fact, in 2020, Justice Alito, who would later author the decision overturning Roe, he expressed amazement that, quote, a district court judge in Maryland, in that case, took it upon himself to overrule the FDA on a question of drug safety. That is now We have to end it there. That is NPR's Nina Totenberg. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. In New York City, there have been new sounds on the streets of Astoria during Ramadan this year. Mosques have been broadcasting the Islamic call to prayer over loudspeakers with the city's permission. That's happened before in some U.S. cities and some parts of the city, but as Zach Hirsch reports, it's a first for Queens. On Friday afternoon, worshippers were gathered outside Al-Iman Mosque in part of a story called Little Egypt. Muhammad Yusuf moved here from the real Egypt five years ago. He says the Adhan, the call to prayer that's been playing in the street, reminds him of home. It feels like uh, you are in your own country, your home country. It's just like a little bit because in Egypt, honestly, it's going to be more loud. Three mosques in the neighborhood have been amplifying the call with loudspeakers, announcing each of the five daily prayers except for the one at dawn. Rana Abdelhamid is a community organizer and former candidate for Congress who grew up here. She submitted the permit applications to local police, who gave the approval last month at the start of Ramadan. The initial agreement when we were applying for the permits was that this was kind of like a test run, so that if it does go well and there are no sound problems or, or complaints, that it would go beyond Ramadan for the entire year, which is what our goal is, is for it to be something that is year-round. When Abdel Hamid first heard the call to prayer coming from her mosque, she cried. And she says lots of people have had the same reaction. Mustafa Chikashik says when he hears this, he can feel it in his heart. It gives you a feeling like you have to go to pray. It's a call from Allah. You have a sensation that Allah is calling you to come to prayer. Invitation to his house. Abdel Hamid says the Adhan came up in community town halls. Astoria has a large population of immigrants from Muslim-majority countries. Abdel Hamid says many of her neighbors were nostalgic for the call to worship. But for her, it's so emotional because of what it was like being Muslim in the city after 9-11. 
Mosques were under heavy surveillance, and lots of Muslims felt like they had to hide their identity. Abdel Hamid remembers people changing their names, putting away their hijabs, and shaving their beards. Anything that marked them as clearly Muslim, I remember growing up and there was a lot of shame around my identity and now I'm like, nah, and like, nah, you know, like, yes, there's xenophobia, yes, there's this hate-based violence, but I'm like proud to be Muslim. The difference now, she says, is what she calls a resistance culture of joy, dedicated efforts to recognize people's needs and celebrate their identities. Mosques in other New York neighborhoods have amplified the call to prayer in the past. There were noise complaints, even threats. But in Astoria, the response has been positive. To me, it is like when you hear the church bells in the morning on Sunday. Atef Mohammed is chairman of Masjid El-Ber, one of the oldest mosques in New York City, where church bells are exempt from the noise code. The law says all houses of worship, including mosques, can use organs, chimes, or similar instruments, but there's nothing on the books for an amplified call to prayer. Muhammad says that's an important part of religious life for many practicing Muslims. We have a lot of Muslims here in the area, a lot of stores, and people is busy buying and selling, so people would forget the time for the prayer. So if they hear the adhan, they will rush to come to the masjid and pray. Ramadan ends this week when the initial permits expire. Astoria's mosques hope to continue the adhan throughout the day, all year. For NPR News, I'm Zach Hirsch. First blockbuster, now Netflix. Well, not all of it. After 25 years, the company is ending its DVD by delivery service. Yes, it does still exist. And yes, people still do use it. My kids love to make fun of me because I like so many black and white films. And so just the access to classic films and obscure films, foreign films, that sort of thing was great. That's John Wallace in Nashville, Tennessee. He has the regular Netflix streaming service, but he and his family have used the DVD delivery system for about 18 years. The company says that it's ending the service because it's shrinking and providing DVDs by mail will become, quote, increasingly difficult. But the end of the Red Envelopes era is a sad one for loyal customers like Wallace. He says his family would spend more time watching movies and less time picking movies. Today, our family... We'll spend an hour sometimes, maybe even more, discussing, searching, looking, arguing over what it is we're going to watch. So, you know, the great thing about Netflix, you had two, three DVDs, whatever it was. Those were your choices. And generally, you always enjoyed it. Typically, still miss that to this day. I'm a little sad to see the DVD subscription part of of Netflix ending, much the same way I was a little sad to see Blockbuster closing shops. That's Jim Heenan in Sterling, Virginia. Knowing this date was drawing near, he canceled his Netflix DVDs late last year. A ritual for him was timing his movie orders. I would take into account how long it took the mail service to send it back and for them to get it and send me the next one. So I had to make sure it was in the mail by Monday or Tuesday so I could get the next one by Friday or Saturday at the latest. And like Wallace, the selection of classic movies was a pull for Heenan, especially for family movie nights. When my kids were young, they pretty much grew up in the 2000s. So a lot of the Pixar movies that came out then, those are my favorites. We'd watch those three or four or five times before we'd send them back. And invariably, a couple months later, they'd want to see them again. And you just put it back at the top of the list and get it back and watch it again for three or four more times. And speaking of classics, Netflix says the first DVD they sent out was Beetlejuice in 1998. Beetlejuice, 
Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. It's showtime. And the most popular title, Sandra Bullock's The Blind Side. The very last Netflix red envelope will be mailed in September. No word yet on what movie it'll be. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes, mental health and abortion. And after that, Fox News has agreed to settle a massive defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems. We'll take stock of many similar cases that are winding their way through the courts against Fox. It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Stocks closed not too far from where they opened today. The Dow had the most movement. It fell about a quarter of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost a tiny fraction of a percent. The owner and operators of a former Somerset scrap metal facility have agreed to a $300,000 settlement with the state. Attorney General Andrea Campbell accused the facility of illegally discharging industrial stormwater into nearby Mount Hope Bay. She also alleged that it caused dust and noise pollution in the surrounding neighborhood Brayton Point. Most of the funds in the settlement will go toward improving water quality and access to the bay. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com, and MIT's McDermott Award in the Arts, honoring Pamela Z. See her lecture at MIT April 20th. More at arts.mit.edu slash McDermott. Plenty of clouds around for the late afternoon and evening. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy. Temperatures should head down to about 39 degrees on the windy side. Tomorrow should be sunny, dry, and windy again. Higher temperatures, though, could rise to the mid-60s. For Friday, not much change. Bright sunshine up again in the mid-60s. The weekend should feature clouds with highs in the low to mid-60s. This is WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. Twelve years ago, we had the decision. LeBron, what's your decision? Um, In this fall, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. That is LeBron James announcing on national TV that he had chosen to play for the Miami Heat. Well, a dozen years and a few NBA teams later, now his 18-year-old son, Bronny James, faces a decision. Bronny is a high school senior choosing between college basketball or entering a professional league. So... Decisions, decisions. Tobias Bass follows basketball recruiting for The Athletic and will help us look at some of the decisions facing Bronny James right now. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Okay, so shocker, LeBron James's oldest son is good at basketball. No way. (laughs) (laughs) But let me ask you, at this stage, just how good is Bronny? He's a good he's a good player. I think that he's solid. You saw today ESPN actually released their final um, 
2023 rankings, he came in at number 19. He's a good player. I think he defends really well. He's really athletic, shoots the ball well off the catch. I think he's a solid prospect. Not great, but solid. Okay. Well, in the past, Bronny's famous dad has talked about wanting his son to go the college route, right? So what options does Bronny have in terms of schools? In terms of schools, he has a USC, Oregon, and Ohio State. Those are good options, aren't they? Like, really great, good options. Great option. <laughs> yeah, great, great option. I mean, who wouldn't want to play in L.A., Oregon with Mikey? You have Ohio State, somewhere his dad said he would have played if he didn't went to college. And why does LeBron James want Bronny to go the college route? I think that, you know, it's some of his experience that, you know, I think LeBron, if he could go back, he probably wish he would have. And, you know, Bronny's been famous forever. I think that you put him in a college setting, he could almost in some small way, be a normal 18, 19-year-old kid. I think that he wants that experience for him, and I think it's also the best way to help him develop for his dreams of being an NBA player. Well, of course, LeBron, the elder I'm talking about here, he went straight to the NBA from high school, right? So that's not allowed anymore. Bronny could go to another pro league or the NBA's minor league, the G League. I mean, what do you think? Do you think we could see Bronny turn professional pretty soon rather than go the college route? I think the options on the table, I think that, you know, one way they would kind of try to woo him into doing it would be, you know, giving him a bunch of money and maybe some other incentives. And I think that one thing that people aren't talking about is LeBron has two years left on his contract. So if Bronny, if he wants to go the professional route, he could sign a two-year deal with the G League or a two-year deal with Overtime Elite, making the timing perfect for when he could play with um, his dad. Well, let's talk about that because Papa LeBron, who's what, 38 years old now, he has made no secret that one day he would like to play in the NBA with Bronny. And I'm guessing like we've never seen that in the history of the NBA, right? Right, right. I mean, I can't imagine the pressure that Bronny's personally facing now. Yeah, I mean, the pressure's definitely on. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, LeBron, he said he was watching a couple of NBA games and I believe he tweeted, he was like, there's no way you can't tell me my son isn't better than some of these guys on the floor, you know, talking about the NBA players. So you can only imagine when he gets there or even in college, they're going to go at him. You know, they're not, you know, yeah, he's LeBron's son, arguably the best player of all time, but they're going to go at him and they're going to challenge him, probably even play him a little bit harder because that's, it's a bold take from dad, but you know, he's a dad and I expect him to say those type of things. How much has Bronny talked out loud about like how daunting it is to fill his dad's immensely huge shoes. I actually haven't seen him talk too much about it, but I think he does a good job soaking it all in. You know, his dad's been his dad forever. You know, he sees him as dad, not as we see him as, you know, LeBron James. So I think that he does a good job soaking it all in. (laughs) (laughs) That is Tobias Bass, basketball analyst with The Athletic. Thank you so much. Thank you. The U.S. government and its Western allies imposed sanctions on Russia in an effort to hamper its ability to fund the war in Ukraine. But there are still Western companies operating in Russia, and getting out isn't as easy or clear-cut as it might seem. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam explains. Just after Russian forces moved into Ukraine a little over a year ago, the U.S. and its allies began leveling sanctions against individuals, banks, and companies with ties to the Kremlin. There was no requirement that U.S. companies leave Russia, but Western companies feared they could get caught up in sanctions and there was public pressure to get out. It was an incredibly frantic time. Adam M. Smith is a former U.S. Treasury Department official, now a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Here in the U.S., partners of mine in the U.K., across Europe, across Asia, uh, were responding to increasingly frantic calls from folks that didn't understand uh, what these sanctions meant for them and how to stay on top of it. 
And this was when sanctions were changing at an incredibly rapid clip. There were roughly 1,400 Western companies operating in Russia before the Ukraine war, according to Jeffrey Sonnenfeld with Yale's Chief Executive Leadership Institute. He says roughly three-quarters of those have withdrawn from Russia, including about 325 American companies. Some, like airlines, restaurant chains, energy and IT companies, quickly pulled out, sold their franchises, severed their agreements with Russian companies, or suspended operations. Sonnenfeld says others took much longer to get out. There were companies that were going through stages of exit that had some difficulties getting out. There were some legal uh, complications. There were franchise arrangements and things that made it hard for them to figure a way out. Sonnenfeld says about 400 companies still remain, including American ones. Mark Dixon runs the Moral Ratings Agency, which also charts Western companies operating in Russia. His group, like Sonnenfeld's, keeps a long list of hundreds of companies in various stages of activity in Russia. He says some prominent firms have said they're getting out, but sometimes that's not the full picture. Sometimes those announcements only related to certain activities, and sometimes they were announcements of what they would do, but then the companies never followed through and actually did it. Daniel Treisman, a Russia specialist at UCLA, says some companies are hedging their bets to see what happens once the Ukraine war is over. He says Western companies run the risk of reputational harm if they stay, but could lose customers to other companies still in Russia if they go. They don't want to be uh, outmaneuvered by their rivals. Uh, so they don't want uh, other firms from other countries, uh, from China or from wherever, to step in when they step out and take over that part of the market. And companies, large or small, trying to exit Russia are facing a loss, says Daniel Tannenbaum, who advises multinational companies at the consulting firm Oliver Wyman. No one is really making money on exiting Russia because it's essentially a fire sale. For the companies that are still there that are planning to exit, there's some that are also trying to manage the cheapest exit if that makes sense, really the least loss to their shareholders as possible. And the Russian government has been making it more difficult for companies to pull out, says Adam M. Smith. One of the things they've done in the past few months is impose what looks like an exit tax. Some percentage of that will go to the Russian Ministry of Finance or the Central Bank of Russia. Revenues which could be used for the war in Ukraine. In general, American companies currently are not required to pull out of Russia. But lawyer Tannenbaum says the Biden administration is sending signals that could change. I think you're beginning to see more pressure and companies give into that pressure of just like enough of waiting, just leave. If you're still on the ground. Another reason to get out? The real possibility the Russian government could just come in and seize the company. Jackie Northam, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, a journalist wanted to find out why white women in rural America were dying, so she started with her hometown, what she discovered coming up. Bruins will host the Florida Panthers tonight in Game 2 of their first-round playoff series. Boston will be without Captain Patrice Bergeron because of an upper body injury. The Bees lead the series one game to zero. And tonight at Fenway Park, it'll be the middle game of the series between the Sox and Minnesota Twins. Corey Kluber will be looking for his first win pitching for Boston. Joe Ryan pitches for the Twins. First pitch is at 7-10. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. A pilot program in Philadelphia schools aims to prevent after-school fights by dispersing students as they pour out of class. But a 17-year-old argues that adults must look honestly at why young people might engage in violence. Why does this kid have a gun? Why, why would someone so young resort to something like this? Getting at the root causes by listening to teens. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Alabama, authorities arrested two teenage suspects last night in a deadly mass shooting over the weekend. Four people were killed, 32 others injured, during a Sweet 16 birthday party in the small town of Dadeville. Police say 17-year-old Tyreek McCullough and 16-year-old Travis McCullough, both from Tuskegee, are facing a series of charges, including four counts of reckless murder. Here's County Prosecutor Mike Segress. This is a very complex case. We mentioned four counts of reckless murder. Obviously, that just includes the four deceased that have been reported. Okay, We've got a lot more victims in this. We've still got four that are in hospital, uh, four that are in critical condition. There'll be pending charges coming. Many of the victims were teenagers, and police are seeking information from anyone who attended the party. No word yet on a motive for that shooting. Florida's Board of Education approved a new rule for teachers today that bars almost all instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity through the 12th grade. From member station WMFE, Joe Burns has more. The rule essentially extends to all grades the ban imposed by the controversial Parental Rights and Education Act, also known as the Don't Say Gay Law. Teachers could lose their credentials if they, quote, intentionally provide classroom instruction on those gender issues outside of certain health classes. Critics of the new rule, like North Florida resident Denise Barber, say this will hurt vulnerable children. I feel like it's my moral obligation as the parent of a trans kid and the grandparent of a transgender child to come up here and say that this rule is based in hate, it's homophobic, it is bigoted, and it is a, it's a disgrace. State officials say the rule makes it clear that teachers should stick to the academic standards. For NPR News, I'm Joe Burns in Ocala, Florida. And you're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cambridge-based wastewater testing company Biobot Analytics will soon start screening for norovirus. Biobot already monitors wastewater in hundreds of locations around the country for COVID-19, MPOX, and substances such as fentanyl and cocaine. It will begin offering the norovirus testing next month. The company says it hopes the data will help communities respond quickly to identify and mitigate outbreaks of norovirus. Vaccine skeptic and environmental lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced today in Boston he's running for president. The Democrat will face President Joe Biden, who's expected to seek a second term. Here's WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Kennedy launched his long-shot bid for the nomination in a packed ballroom. Along with his famous family name, Kennedy is best known as a leader in the anti-vaccine movement and for spreading largely discredited information about the dangers of vaccines. Today, he told supporters during a two-hour speech he's running for president to end what he called the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. I don't want you know, the Democratic Party to be the party of fear and pharma and war and censorship. <laughs> 
Kennedy is the son of former U.S. Attorney General and Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who was assassinated as he ran for president in 1968, and the nephew of former President John F. Kennedy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Governor Maura Healey is trying to encourage Massachusetts towns and cities to create more effective climate resilience plans. Today, she announced an update to the program that helps them prepare for the effects of climate change, such as flooding and heat. The revision will focus on working with communities that already bear the burden of environmental pollution and climate impact. Those cities and towns will also receive $50,000 to develop and implement climate plans. It's 534. In the forecast, partly cloudy, windy overnight tonight should be down around the upper 30s. Tomorrow and Friday should be in the mid-60s. Sunny skies likely both days should be breezy both days as well. Uh, with temperatures this weekend in the 60s, lots of clouds ahead for this weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. In a moment, how states think about mental health and abortion exemptions. But first, a back and forth in Washington today with major global financial stakes. House Republicans have said they will not vote to raise the debt limit without corresponding cuts. And now they've finally put forward their plan. It includes major spending cuts and policy changes, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy argues it's time to fix the country's growing fiscal problem. If Washington wants to spend more, it will have to come together, find savings elsewhere, just like every single household in America. President Biden and other Democrats are already saying these ideas are non-starters. NPR's Deirdre Walsh joins us now with the latest on this high-stakes fight. Hey, Deirdre. Hey, Scott. So what is in McCarthy's proposal? There are a lot of provisions, but the key one to avoid a default later this summer, the bill would increase the country's borrowing authority by $1.5 trillion or through March of next year, whichever comes first. It's worth noting that 2024, that would be the middle of an election year. Mm -hmm. The House Republican bill would roll back federal spending levels to those from two years ago and limit the growth of spending going forward to 1% annually. House Republicans also want to claw back federal COVID money that hasn't been spent and roll back the student loan forgiveness program that President Biden put into place that's tied up in legal fights right now. The other thing it would do is repeal key parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. That's President Biden's signature legislative bill that funded energy and climate change programs. Instead, House Republicans are adding provisions that would speed permitting of new energy projects. 
The bill also restores some work requirements for adults without dependents who receive federal assistance for things like food stamps. So President Biden also gave a speech right around the same time as McCarthy. What did he say? Well, he spoke from a union hall in Maryland, and he really contrasted his message with McCarthy's visit up to Wall Street on Monday to talk about this issue. The president argued that the threat of default hurts the economy, and he said both parties contributed to the current $31 trillion in debt. The debt that took 230 years to accumulate overall, overall, unless we do what they say. They say they're going to default unless I agree to all these wacko notions they have. The president said he's open to a conversation about growing the economy, but insists default has to be off the table. So perpetual question on stuff like this. What happens next? (laughs) Right. McCarthy is planning for a House vote on his bill next week. He told me leaving the House floor after his speech, he was confident he has the support from his members to pass it. But the legislation could face some defections from inside the House Republican Conference. As you know, Scott, the the speaker can only afford to lose a handful of votes. Mm McCarthy's been around for fights over the debt ceiling in the past, but the majority of House Republicans didn't serve in Congress for the last major fight over the debt ceiling that actually resulted in a downgrade of the country's credit rating. Democrats, as we talked about earlier, immediately panned the idea, and they're talking about the impact of rolling back uh, spending levels for a bunch of these federal programs. But McCarthy's real goal with putting this proposal forward is to show that House Republicans have their own plan. He wants to force President Biden to come to the negotiating table. The two have not met to talk about the debt ceiling in length since February 1st. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said the country's going to run out of money to pay its bills sometime this summer. So it's really not a lot of time to hammer out a proposal that can clear both the House and the Senate and get signed by the president. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks, Scott. Most states that ban abortion do allow exceptions for life-threatening emergencies. But Regan McCarthy of WFSU reports lawmakers in Florida have specified that the state's exemptions do not apply in cases of psychological conditions. A warning to our listeners, this story contains discussion of suicide and mental health. Bailey Johnson had been married to her husband for about a year when she found out she was pregnant. She was also battling anxiety and eating disorder and was having suicidal thoughts. I just remember thinking two things. One, that I needed help. And two, that this depression and suicidality is not something that can continue to just be passed down in our family. Johnson says her grandmother, mother, and sister had all previously attempted suicide. She says her doctors told her she needed to begin immediately treating her mental health. They also said the medicine she would need might not be safe during her pregnancy. I was told that a lot of OBGYNs would not be comfortable treating a pregnant woman on that high level of medication. Johnson says she was afraid for her life. She knew she needed to move forward with treatment and couldn't fathom the idea of bringing a child into a world she no longer wanted to be in. She had what she calls a life-saving abortion when she was six weeks and one day pregnant. A few days ago, Governor Ron DeSantis signed the state's new six-week ban into law. It's not in effect yet. That law and the law currently in place allow for an abortion when the life of a pregnant person is at risk, but not if their life is in danger for psychological reasons. Democratic State Senator Lori Berman tried to address that through an amendment. This amendment tells women and pregnant people, along with their doctors, that we trust them to decide what's best for their health. But Republicans and others argued receiving an abortion is more likely to lead to negative mental health outcomes. 
Andrew Sherval, with a group called Florida Voice for the Unborn, spoke during a committee hearing. The real mental crisis is caused by abortion, not pregnancy. When you look at the studies, that's just not the case. Heather Flynn is a psychologist and chairs the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Social Medicine at Florida State University. She says right after a person decides to have an abortion, there can be some increased depression or anxiety. But when you take a look at whether or not people actually have psychiatric disorders, the rates are higher if you carry a pregnancy to term and deliver the baby. Flynn says suicide is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality. She also says one in five people experience a psychiatric disorder during pregnancy or in the postpartum period. Navigating the system to get care is difficult, and sometimes doctors can be reluctant to provide psychiatric care to pregnant people. Flynn says as many as two-thirds of people don't get the treatment they need for psychiatric disorders during and after pregnancy. And she says that's one reason people need the ability to decide whether to continue a pregnancy. Just like if a woman had cancer and was undergoing chemotherapy or any kind of cancer treatment that might be dangerous, they would probably consider putting off their pregnancy until they were in remission. For Bailey Johnson, she says an abortion gave her time to get care and get healthy. Since our first interview for this piece, she's had a few life updates. She started a new job working for Planned Parenthood and is happy to report she's expecting twins. Johnson says if she hadn't been able to end her first pregnancy. Not only would I probably not be here today because of the the suicidal thoughts that were going on at the moment um, during our first pregnancy, etc. But, you know, the two little ones that we're expecting any day now wouldn't be here. Johnson says she's learned tools she'll pass to her children if they too struggle with mental health, and she's better able to advocate for herself and her need to continue taking some medications during this pregnancy. The six-week ban won't go into effect unless a privacy provision in Florida's constitution is found to no longer protect the right to abortion. That case is pending before the state Supreme Court. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Tallahassee. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988-SUICIDE-AND-CRISIS lifeline. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Fox settled a massive defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems over spreading lies and conspiracy theories tied to the 2020 election. And Fox has agreed to pay Dominion almost $800 million rather than face them in court. But as NPR's Lisa Hagen reports, there are more than a dozen similar cases now making their way through the U.S. judicial system. Some big names are still facing serious lawsuits over false election claims. President Donald Trump, his campaign lawyer and former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, and MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell. The list also includes smaller conservative outlets and figures whose false narratives upended the lives of ordinary people. Telling me that, you know, I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. That's former Georgia election worker Shea Moss testifying to Congress about being falsely accused, along with her mother, of ballot tampering. Their lawsuit against Giuliani is moving forward, and another against the conservative website Gateway Pundit is set for trial next month. Traditionally, it's been difficult for ordinary people like Moss and her mother to afford the high cost of legal battles like these. 
the legal nonprofit Protect Democracy has stepped in to represent them and others with similar stories. Here's attorney Sarah Shameen Weiss with the group. I think we see this as in order to have a thriving democracy, we need to be operating on a shared reality and a shared set of facts. Before settling the Dominion case, Fox had argued Trump's claims of a stolen election were newsworthy and protected by the First Amendment, which the judge rejected. Until recently, proving someone lied or disregarded things they should have known were false has never been easy, according to Ronnell Anderson-Jones, a media law professor at the University of Utah. It's only in this new era of the apparent deliberate creation of known lies for politics or profit that we get some cases that put us in a place where the evidence body is deep enough and broad enough that these cases have a chance of succeeding. Anderson Jones says defamation cases can play some role in anchoring public discussions in shared truth, but they only address lies aimed at individuals or specific companies. And in some respects, that's a Band-Aid on a bullet wound for the wider problem of election denialism. For Larissa Lidsky, who teaches law at the University of Florida, courts can only do so much about the supply side of that information. But I think you have to look at the demand side, is to what extent are we going out there and consuming false information willingly because it, it you know, it's more pleasurable to us than, than true information would be. She also says defamation cases don't always deliver the clean declarations of truth that many people crave. Legal technicalities or settlements like yesterday's with Dominion can easily be framed by partisans as confirmation that an election lie or some other false narrative was actually true. Lisa Hagen, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered Bariatric Surgery for Adolescents and how views on it have changed in the past decade. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Inuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Inuendo Natick and Inuendo.com. Join us Saturday afternoon, April 22nd at City Space for a Climate Hope concert as musicians, artists, and scientists create an immersive multimedia celebration of the planet. Tickets are at wbur.org events. In the forecast right now, it's 50 degrees in the Boston area. should fall all the way to about 39 tonight, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, milder weather back up in the mid-60s. Lots of sunshine due in for tomorrow. Friday, sunny again in the mid-60s again. The weekend should turn out cloudy and breezy with high temperatures in the 60s. Again, 50 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 549. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. 
Climate change can feel big. While we don't have all the answers, WBUR is asking lots of questions. We're getting out there, meeting you where you are. From Boston's largest undeveloped green space to a heat island in one of the city's most popular neighborhoods. Discover how Boston is changing as we face climate reality. Stay with WBUR and explore our stories to help protect the planet at WBUR.org slash climate reality. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Two best friends start with the same dream, but grow up to live very different lives. It's the story at the heart of a new memoir about getting out of a small town and the crushing pressures to stay in it. The book is The Forgotten Girls, a memoir of friendship and lost promise in rural America. It was written by Monica Potts, a journalist who grew up in Clinton, Arkansas. Monica, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So you're the one who you know, as it were, got out, you went to college, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But let's start with this. Your friend Darcy didn't. Tell us about Darcy and and, and tell us about when the two of you were really young, the, the type of dreams you shared. Yeah, Darcy and I met when we were really young, like five or six. And from that moment on, we were almost sisters. We grew up in a small town in um, the Ozark Mountains, as you said, Clinton, Arkansas. It's only about 2,500 people. So it's just a really small town. It's a strong evangelical community. When we were little, she used to be at my house a lot and we would look through an old atlas and dream about getting away when we were older to a big place. We thought towns with bold names in the atlas must be more like real towns like we saw on TV with neighborhoods and sidewalks. And we would love to live there and play there with other kids our age. And Later, when we were older, we dreamed about going to concerts in towns like that and listening to bands that we liked instead of the country music that we heard everywhere. So Mm -hmm. we had a dream of going to California. That was our ambition when we were little. Just focusing in on that marriage message, you also write about the hypocrisy and the confusion about your life is about getting married. Your life is about finding a husband. Your life is about having children. And yet... If you have sex before marriage and if you get pregnant, that's a terrible, terrible decision. And just trying to make sense of of all of these conflicting messages as, as a teenager. Yeah. Well, it's a terrible, terrible decision, but the path to redemption is through the church. So you can sort of make amends with the community as long as you sort of adopt this worldview or really sort of set yourself right by the church in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, At the expense of your education, in many in many examples, right? You were taught you write yeah. about people dropping out of high school their sophomore or junior year even and getting married once they become pregnant. Mm-hmm. At the expense of your education, at the expense of whatever else you might have wanted for your life, your life then becomes about being a mother and everything else that you might have wanted becomes subsumed by that. So you go to college, you begin a career as a journalist. Darcy drops out of college relatively early. She stays in and around Clinton. She's in a series of abusive relationships. She has she has drug problems, but you ultimately reconnected as an adult. Tell us about that. Well, as it happened, I was working as a journalist for a magazine called The American Prospect in Washington, D.C., and I had started to read a series of studies about particularly white women with the least amounts of education, were losing years of life expectancy compared to the generation before. 
So that felt very personal to me. I felt that I knew the kind of women that were being represented in those studies. That group of women were similar to the girls that I had grown up with. And I wanted to come home and see if I could report out what was happening in places like Clinton and places like rural Arkansas and across rural America. While I was here in April 2015, Darcy reached out to me for the first time in years by that point and said she wanted to reconnect and get in touch. And we met up and we started talking and I told her what I was doing here. She had told me a little bit about her life and I had heard pieces of it over the years. I told her what I was working on, what I was reporting on, and the kind of book I wanted to potentially write about what was happening to women in places like Clinton. Mm -hmm. And she just kind of said, well, maybe you should just write about me. And from there, we started to talk more about her life. Um, And we spent a lot of time together over the next few years. And she really struggled in those interactions with you. You talk about driving her to to court hearings after, after she gets herself in trouble time and time again. Yeah, it was really up and down and it was often painful to watch and it was often hard to live. But she thought at the time that if her story might help other people, then it would be worth it. And that was part of her motivation for wanting to talk to me about this. And it was also part of my motivation for writing the book. Darcy's struggles were deep and long. They had come from long ago traumas, long ago issues that had never been resolved. And I'm happy to say she's doing a lot better now. And what do you think the the big picture lessons are? What is it about Darcy's struggles that, that you think are emblematic of, of the broader problems right now in rural America, especially for, for younger women? You know, I, I've spent about five years trying to think about this and trying to answer some of these questions. And I would say that one of the things happening in rural America, especially at least my part of rural America and places like it, is this perception of scarcity. I think it's easy for people here to believe that they've been forgotten, that there's no help for them, that there's no options outside of what they know and what's familiar to them, that life outside of the church and motherhood and marriage for girls is you know, a path that can be taken. They're just not connected to those options. And so I think the first place to start would be to think about expanding those worlds and connecting people to the broader world a little bit better and giving people the freedom to become who they are and who they need to be. How would you describe Clinton today? It's pretty much the same. It's not much bigger There's a downtown courthouse square around a beautiful old courthouse with native stone siding. I actually really love the downtown. A lot of the storefronts are still empty, but more recently since COVID, a few stores have come in there, but it's still pretty small and it's still pretty reliant on just a few outside industries. It's not very affluent Mm -hmm. and it has a lot of, it has a lot of problems and it has a lot of struggles. It has a lot of problems and struggles and yet over the time period where you began reporting this book and writing this book, you made a decision to move back there yourself. Why? I did. There's a moment when I started to come home in my mid-30s, I would say, that I just realized how beautiful this place was to me, that it's probably not objectively the most beautiful place on earth, but it's my home. I have really deep roots here. My mother is still here. My sister and my dad are buried here. It's where my grandfather 
bought back land from the bank after they had lost it during the Great Depression. You can't really pick where you're from. Home is home. And I never really quite settled down elsewhere. And there are things about this place I love, the wildness, the mountains, the rivers, some of the culture. And I felt I needed to sort of close the loop on some of those things before I could move on with my adulthood and experience this place anew and with fresh adult eyes. Well, that's Monica Potts speaking to us from her home in Clinton, Arkansas. Her new book is The Forgotten Girls. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's Earth Week, and the Common Podcast is exploring issues about the environment each day. Today, Crane Ledge Woods is the largest undeveloped green space in Boston, but it could be sold. Find the Common on your podcast app. In the forecast overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies down around 39 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine back up in the mid-60s. 50 degrees now in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series, presenting the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis, a big band experience at Symphony Hall, April 21st. CelebritySeries.org. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court has extended access to the abortion pill Mifeprestone through Friday. Justices are deciding whether the medication used by millions of women to terminate early pregnancies should remain available across the country. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, April 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a check on how Republican Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign is faring compared to Donald Trump's. And bariatric surgery used to be almost unheard of for young teenagers who are suffering from severe obesity. But attitudes are changing based on the science. You're going to live longer. You're going to be healthier and live longer with the surgery than without it. Also, residents of Nepal who are in harm's way because of melting glaciers are grappling with whether they can stay in their homes. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up next. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court has extended until Friday at midnight an administrative stay in an ongoing lower court fight over the banning of limiting of the FDA-approved use of the abortion pill, Mifepristone, the announcement essentially kicking the can down the road on what the high court will do for another few days. NPR's Sarah McCammon is more on the order from Justice Samuel Alito. What this latest action from Justice Alito means is simply that things once again will stay as they are, the status quo stays in place at least for a couple more days. Had the court taken no action at all, a lower court ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals would have taken effect that would have imposed some restrictions on abortion pills. But for the moment, for a couple more days, things will stay as they are while the court apparently considers what it wants to do next. NPR's Sarah McCammon, medication abortion drugs are typically used in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, but they are also used to treat patients who suffered a miscarriage. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, abortion opponents have turned their attention to attacking the original approval of the drug, which has been around for more than 20 years. Alabama authorities arrested two teenage suspects last night in a deadly mass shooting over the weekend. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports four people were killed, 32 others injured at a Sweet 16 birthday party in the small town of Dadeville. Sergeant Jeremy Burkett with the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency says 17-year-old Tyreek McCullough and 16-year-old Travis McCullough, both of Tuskegee, Alabama, were arrested on four counts each of reckless murder. This is Alabama. And when you pull out a gun and you start shooting people, we're going to put you in jail. Many of the victims were teenagers. Burkett says the investigation is ongoing and he's asking anyone who attended the party to contact law enforcement. He declined to share the motive behind the shooting. The local prosecutor, Mike Segrist, plans to try the teens as adults. Don't mess with our kids, he said. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Anecdotal reports from Federal Reserve banks around the country are suggesting a slowdown in economic growth. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the Fed's latest Beige Book. Consumer spending, manufacturing, and freight volumes all range from flat to down. According to the new report from regional Fed banks around the country, hiring has also slowed and wage growth appears to be moderating. The Beige Book paints a picture of an economy that's downshifted significantly since the beginning of the year, and the collapse of two big regional banks last month may have contributed to that slowdown. Other banks are generally becoming more cautious about lending money. Prices continue to climb, but not as fast as they had been. The anecdotal accounts in the book, along with other data, will help to inform the Fed's decision next month on whether to raise interest rates. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 79 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, Lisa Mullins. The Air National Guardsman from Dighton accused of leaking confidential military documents will stay in custody for at least another two weeks. The 21-year-old suspect made a brief court appearance in Boston Federal Court today. As WBR's Ali Jarmanning reports, he waived his right to a hearing that would have required prosecutors to show they had enough evidence to charge him. Jack Teixeira had been scheduled for a detention hearing to determine whether he should be held pending trial, but his attorney asked for a two-week delay. Instead, Magistrate Judge David Hennessy questioned Teixeira on whether he was willingly waiving his right to a preliminary hearing. Teixeira bent down to the microphone and answered, yes, your honor. He wore an orange jumpsuit from the Plymouth County Correctional Facility and black rosary beads around his neck. His father sat in the front row of the courtroom. 
The leak of intelligence documents detailing the war in Ukraine and U.S. spycraft sparked an international response and has prompted an investigation by the Air Force. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning at the Federal Courthouse in Boston. The MBTA says it expects to lift all the speed restrictions on the blue line by November. The T's new general manager, Philip Eng, said today that the Transit Authority may need to shut down the line on weeknights for a month to have longer to make the necessary repairs. He says the Transit Authority is still developing plans to eliminate slow zones on the rest of the subway system. He gave no timeline for that. The pastor of a Cambridge church that was severely damaged by fire recently says he's shocked to hear from investigators that they believe the fire was set. It broke out on Easter Sunday at the Faith Lutheran Church outside Inman Square, Cambridge. Here's WBUR's Dave Faniff. Pastor Robin Lute Johan says it will take some time to process the surprise, shock, and grief. He says the news about arson is concerning and disturbing for the community. When you hear news like this, sometimes our first response might be to speculate or to come up with theories or to go to fear or blame. And those are all not really very productive places to be right now. Lute Johan says the church members' faith and commitment to pray for one another will lead them to love, confidence, and hope. As for the future of the church, he says it is way too soon to tell what the plans eventually will be. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. Chillier than our overnights have been tonight, with temperatures dipping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow on Friday should be in the mid-60s. Two nice days. Sunny skies both days should be breezy as well. Some clouds around for the weekend. Temperatures settling in the 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Each year, more than 2,000 American adolescents get bariatric surgery. As the treatment gains traction among families and doctors alike, we'll hear from one of the first teens to get the surgery on how it affected her life. More on that in a few minutes. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis seemed to have a pretty clear plan for early 2023. Rack up win after win in Tallahassee during Florida's legislative session. Travel all over the country looking like a presidential candidate without actually formally announcing a campaign. So far, the Florida governor is getting what he hoped for in the state house, but a series of stumbles and a slew of recent endorsements for Donald Trump, not DeSantis, has political observers questioning whether his campaign has peaked before it formally began. Emily Mahoney has been following DeSantis's non-campaign campaign from Florida. She is the political editor at the Tampa Bay Times. Hey, Emily. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So just get a sense of the balance that DeSantis is trying to strike. Tell us how he's spending his days lately. Yeah, so he is jetting all over the country. Honestly, keeping track of his schedule is a bit like playing Where's Waldo here from Florida. Uh, To give you an example of a particularly busy uh, period uh, late last week, on Thursday evening, he was near Cincinnati speaking at a Lincoln Day dinner. Then later that night, he flew back to Tallahassee late at night signed a bill banning abortions in Florida after six weeks. By the next morning, he was in Virginia speaking to Liberty University, and later that day he was scheduled to be in New Hampshire. So he's really all over the place, sort of mixing and matching both 
official duties as governor and also, of course, doing lots of political stuff as well. Yeah. So let's look back to November. Election Day DeSantis wins Florida in a blowout. Most of Trump's handpicks nominees falter. It seems like maybe DeSantis is the future for Republicans. This week, though, when DeSantis visited Washington, D.C., he had several Florida congressmen really embarrass him by using that moment to announce that they're backing Trump. What's going on here? Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's kind of a combination of of a few different wobbles that he's been experiencing. You know, he also uh, called the the war in Ukraine a territorial dispute, which also kind of brought down a lot of criticism, bipartisan mm-hmm. criticism uh, that also, you know, sort of had him dipping in the polls a little bit. And, um, you know, one thing I found interesting about some of the, the more recent uh, endorsements from Florida's members of Congress was the one from Congressman Greg Stubbe, who said that uh, he felt snubbed essentially at a DeSantis press conference after Hurricane Ian and that Donald Trump was much warmer to him, that Trump reached out to him when Stubbe had a recent accident and was in the hospital and that he never heard from DeSantis. And so, you know, I I think this is a combination of a few different things happening right now. But, uh, you know, the Stubbe example sort of reminds me of the fact that we've been hearing a criticism of DeSantis for a long time now, that he's not a very warm person who's that good at schmoozing or that comfortable with schmoozing, which is sort of the polar opposite of Donald Trump. And I think, you know, Trump is potentially cashing in right now on the personal relationships that he's built over time in the Republican Party. And look, it's hard to run for president, even if like Ron DeSantis at this particular moment, you aren't officially doing it. Of course, he's going everywhere you go when you're running for president. But have you seen any signs that he's kind of responding to the criticism or the circumstances and changing his approach? Well, when it comes to something like the Ukraine comment, he did sort of walk that back and say that, you know, he didn't really mean that the whole war was a territorial dispute and things like that. So we have seen him adjusting somewhat. And even that is somewhat rare for DeSantis because he is more typical. uh, It's more typical for him to sort of double down on things when he gets criticized. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, he's still acting like a guy who fully intends on running for president. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that anything that's gone on lately is is changing his plans. Um, and, you know, you could argue that the poll numbers on a guy who hasn't even fully announced a campaign yet are, you know, pretty limited in their usefulness anyway. And we've got something like nine months before the first primary begins. That's Emily Mahoney. She is the Tampa Bay Times political editor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. A decade ago, bariatric surgery on young teenagers was largely unheard of. Today, surgery and new weight loss drugs are endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics as advanced treatment for severe obesity in kids as young as 13. As more families consider surgical treatment, NPR's Yuki Noguchi talked with a woman who was one of the first young teens to get it. Maria Caprino is 27, a first-grade teacher at a Boston charter school, and a single mom by choice, having given birth to her second child this month. All of that's been possible, she says, because she got bariatric surgery 13 years ago. I had been told by my pediatrician that the way I was gaining weight every year, I wouldn't see my 18th birthday. I was pre-diabetic. We really thought the obesity was going to kill me. In 2010, Caprino was 14 and still gaining weight at 440 pounds while on various diets. 
Her mom found a doctor at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., willing to perform a gastric sleeve operation, then still new. Being one of the first and potentially the youngest to ever get the surgery did not scare a young Caprino. I was like, if someone's going to be a guinea pig, I'm ready to do it, because if I can help anyone else who's suffering the way I have been, it's going to be worth it in the end. And if I get more than four more years out of my life out of it, again, it's going to be worth it. Evan Nadler is the surgeon who performed Caprino's surgery. She's one of the first people to really understand obesity care. And obviously, she was one of the first to focus on children and adolescents also needing that care. Caprino's once novel story is now relevant to many more families today. More than 2,000 American adolescents get the surgery every year. That's likely to increase as the new treatment guidelines lead to greater awareness and insurance coverage for obesity treatment, whether it's surgery or new classes of medications like Wagovi. Of course, many parents recoil at the notion of putting children under the knife. Skeptics like UCLA surgeon Edward Livingston worry kids can't understand its lifelong implications. He advises parents. Let them wait until they can make their own decision. Complications are also a concern. Those can include infection or tearing or malnutrition or weight regain in the longer term. Even Caprino needed an additional surgery several years later. Harvard obesity specialist Fatima Cody-Stanford says surgery is typically a family's last choice. For example, one boy she met at 13 faced liver failure from obesity. The mom and him were like adamant against any surgical intervention. For two years, he tried medications and exercise and made no progress. Only now are they open to surgery. Stanford says that resistance is partly due to stigma. They've been taught by society to believe that you do this the right way. The right way is diet and exercise. Parent Nikki Massey can relate. She's on the board of the Obesity Action Coalition, an advocacy group that receives industry funding. She got bariatric surgery 15 years ago when her daughters were young. Now both are in their 20s and struggle with obesity-related health problems. We could have avoided these things if we had caught it earlier. But she also admits she might have rejected it had surgery been an option. Oh, even when I think that, it's like... <laughs> This is where my scientific brain and my parenting brain clash. She knows obesity is driven by factors like genetics or environment that are not in a child or parent's control. And yet... I would have judged myself as a parent for it. I would feel like somehow I didn't do what I was supposed to have done to, to control this any other way. And I know in my head academically that obesity is a medical condition. In other words, there's lots of fear, not just of surgery, but of judgment. So surgeons like Thomas Inge at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago emphasize that obesity is a disease and point to surgery's promising track record. Inge is also lead author of an upcoming 10-year study of bariatric surgery on teens. He says the data will show the benefits are durable. You're going to live longer. You're going to be healthier and live longer with the surgery than without it. He says treatment also often relieves mental health burdens for kids. Maybe if it's not a societal glass ceiling, it's a glass ceiling in their minds that they can't do something that their peers can do because of just their lived experience. If I can do something about that, I feel really good about it. And I think that they will enjoy better lives because we've intervened. So it was for Maria Caprino, who never joined theater groups in school despite her love of the musical stage. 
costumes didn't fit me and I was afraid to get up on stage and with my body I couldn't get enough air into my lungs really hit the notes that I wanted to musically I felt it impacting my passions my ability to feel passion for the things I loved Rigorous mental health evaluation prior to surgery is the recommended standard. Teens must prove they can commit to the permanent changes in lifestyle and nutrition necessary after surgery. They must also be emotionally stable enough to handle such big life changes. For Caprino, the impact was immediate and welcome. In so many ways, I changed as a person very quickly. She didn't just lose weight. She spoke out. She appeared on CNN just a month after surgery. I want to live. I want to do so many things. And I knew that this was my only option. That segment drew vicious criticism, especially of her parents. But Caprino says facing that reinforced her convictions about surgery. It was me facing a lot of anxieties I had about acknowledging what I looked like and acknowledging my health and being okay saying, yeah, I have a disease, I have obesity, and I'm doing something to treat it. Caprino shed tears of joy, she says, when the Pediatrics Association endorsed bariatric surgery for teens. Because if these guidelines had been in place when I was 12, I would have had to fight so much less to live. It does so much more than just impact their physical health. It impacted my passions in life, my social life, my ability to speak out and just own who I am. She's glad many more kids now might have surgery as an option. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Coming up on Marketplace at 6.30, as the online shopping boom continues, bigger warehouses are being built in response. We'll take a look at how that's transforming communities. Marketplace starts at 6.30. WBUR supporters include Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival, sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists, and more. This Saturday in Waltham, goreplace.org. Stocks closed not too far from where they opened today. The Dow had the most movement. It fell about a quarter of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq both lost a tiny fraction of a percent. The number of millionaires in Boston has risen by 50 percent in the past decade. There are now more than 40,000 millionaires. That's according to a new annual report by the investment firm Henley & Partners. That means the city of Boston has the seventh highest number of millionaires in the U.S., the 26th highest worldwide. The city has eight billionaires. It's 619. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. In the forecast overnight tonight, falling to about 39 degrees, partly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, milder weather back up in the mid-60s, lots of sunshine. Friday, sunny again in the mid-60s and sticking to the 60s over the weekend as some clouds move in. This is 90.9 WBUR.
WVUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts and Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Climate change is causing glaciers to melt around the world. This is a story about what happens to communities after a glacier melts. You must walk as a penguin. Like this? Yes. Why? That's NPR's Rebecca Hersher getting help from a trekking guide named Depeche Joshi. If you walk fast, you get more tired. Mm. Slow and steady. Yes. Okay, I can do that. Walk like a penguin. They were high in the Himalayan mountains, near 16,000 feet, with a team from NPR's climate desk. And they were climbing up something called a moraine, which is basically a thousand-foot-tall pile of boulders created by a glacier. But when they finally got to the top, there was no glacier in sight. Oh, wow. There was only water. NPR's Rebecca Hersher takes it from here. The water stretched basically as far as I could see, a gigantic gray lake surrounded by rocky mountains. And even though this place had clearly been shaped by glaciers for millennia, I couldn't see any ice at first. Can you see the glacier from here? Yeah. Depeche, the trekking guide, pointed all the way to the other end of the lake. Do you see the sand? Yeah. Over there? That's the glacier. The uh, ice is covered in sand? Yes. Oh. It looked like a dirty snowbank at the end of the winter. All of the water that used to be frozen in that glacier is sitting in front of us. The water can't flow downhill because it's trapped by the huge pile of boulders that we just climbed, the moraine. The moraine is like a natural dam. And so as the glacier dies, the lake grows and grows and threatens everyone living downstream. After I caught my breath by the water's edge, I began chatting with a retired school teacher named Talak Acharya, who had hiked up to the lake just for fun that day. He has lived in this area for decades. Yeah, how has this changed? Since, many since. The lake has gotten a lot bigger, he says. It was big, big, big. He's seen it grow with his own eyes. In the 1950s, when he was a child, it was just a collection of small ponds and a pasture. Now, the water covers an area the size of about 300 football fields. Finu Shrestha is one of the leading scientists studying lakes like this one. She works at the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development, a research institute in Kathmandu. And she says glacial lakes are a growing threat. We can say that, yes, uh, climate change are really impacting glacier as well as glacier lake. The problem is that climate change is causing mountain glaciers to melt extremely quickly. And the lakes that are formed are often unstable. The water can escape all at once. That's what happened last year to multiple glacial lakes in Pakistan, as the country grappled with some of the worst floods in modern history. A year earlier, a flood from a glacial lake in India killed an estimated 200 people and destroyed a hydropower plant. Glacial lakes have also caused floods in the Alps, in the Andes, and in the U.S. A glacial lake outside Alaska's capital, Juneau, has caused flash flooding every year since 2011. 
Juno is one of the few places in the world where residents downstream get a warning before such a flood happens. There is no warning system for the vast majority of the estimated 15 million people threatened by glacial lake floods worldwide, including in Nepal. 74-year-old Ang Tenzin Sherpa lives in the village of Na, immediately downstream from the lake that we visited. From his farm, he can see the moraine that holds back the water. Nepal's government warns that the lake poses a critical risk. If the natural dam is overwhelmed and the lake bursts, Ang's entire village will be gone. In the summer, if it rains, I can't sleep. Every sound I hear, I wonder if it's the water coming down from the lake. I wear my clothes to bed every night in case we need to run away. My colleague, Nepalese journalist Pragati Shahi, asks Sherpa if he would feel more safe if there was a warning system, like an alarm. Yeah, it will be helpful if we get like some early warnings before some events happen. In the 1990s and early 2000s, there was an alarm system here. And the story of what happened to it is emblematic of how hard it can be to protect people from lakes like this one. Talak Acharya, the retired school teacher I met standing next to the lake, told me the story of what happened. About 30 years ago, he says, there was a minor flood here. The water came from a smaller lake created by the melting of a smaller glacier. The flood damaged some buildings, and it definitely made us pay attention to the lake. After that, we wrote letters to the government, to embassies, to everyone. In their letters, Acharya and his neighbors demanded that the government do something to protect them. The government responded by installing alarms that would be triggered if a flood was happening, and also by draining some of the water from the lake to reduce the danger. Did it work? Oh. It helped. If we hadn't done it, the risks from floods would be much worse. But over time, Acharya says, the alarms broke. A lead government hydrologist told NPR it's too difficult to maintain the equipment. This area is remote. It's many days' walk to the nearest road. Electricity just arrived for the first time last year. And so now there are no alarms and no plans to fix them. The threat of flooding has changed this valley. Villages that once thrived on the banks of the river are shrinking. Schools have closed. There are fewer businesses. Homes stand empty. The looming lake has even inserted itself into otherwise happy families. <laughs> Ang Tenzin Sherpa has been married to his wife, Ferdigi, for 40 years. He is the one who sleeps in his clothes so he can flee if there's a flood. The couple have a farm where they raise yaks and potatoes. On the day I visited, 80-year-old Ferdiki was churning butter in their living room. Ferdiki and Ang have seven children and nine grandchildren, most of whom live hours away in Kathmandu. Ang would like to join them. If I had money, I would live in Kathmandu. I think it would be better there. But Ferdiki has no interest in moving to the city. Yeah, I don't like living in Kathmandu. It's like, I like it here. Here, the water is clean, she says. She can breathe. She's not afraid. This is her home. So it's, uh, it's good to live here. Of course, this is her husband's home, too. The only one he's ever known. But it's changing so quickly that it frightens him. 
I noticed he seems more scared than his wife. Do they ever talk about it? Ang avoids the question and laughs, which is its own kind of answer. For now, they'll stay here in the shadow of the lake. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News, Cho Rolpa Lake, Nepal. This piece was reported in collaboration with Ryan Kelman and Pragati Shahi, with field support from Depesh Joshi and Prasong Sherpa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins host the Florida Panthers tonight in Game 2 of their first-round playoff series. Boston will be without Captain Patrice Bergeron because of an upper body injury. The Bees lead the series one game to zero. Red Sox take on the Minnesota Twins tonight for the second game of their three-game set at Fenway. 7-10 start time. Corey Kluber pitches for the Sox. Joe Ryan for the Twins. A heads-up if you're using the T tonight. Shuttle buses will replace service on the red line between between Park Street and JFK UMass Station from 8.45 until the end of service. It's for track work. The same thing will happen again tomorrow night. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C.